0: Father, we are so thankful that you present yourself as a good and gracious king, that we gather in your presence and you make yourself known to us. And we pray now that as we open your word together that we would understand by your Spirit's grace in our hearts some new understanding of who you are, of who we are in light of that, and God help us to respond in faith. And so guide us in these ways we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this summer our staff are going to be preaching a series from the life of Elijah and uh, a little bit on Elisha as well uh, Derek started that a couple of weeks for us weeks ago from first Kings chapter 17 if you've got your Bibles with you this morning or your devices however you look up your scriptures I'd invite you to turn with me there now we're going to be at first Kings 18 in just a few minutes uh, Jesse's taking one next Sunday <clears throat> pray for him as this is going to be one of his first preaching opportunities with us and so just cover him with your grace and blessing and uh, then we'll have a couple more in August with a mix of some other speakers as we've been doing over the season while uh, we wait for our new lead pastor to come as we uh, as I mentioned that just uh, just to highlight there. The search team has been working hard over the last uh, several weeks since any last highlight that we've had. We've been interviewing. We mentioned that we had several candidates. They've been prioritized. We have worked through some interview processes and been looking at references and are working down to uh, a couple of that. uh, We are going deeper in some interviews and things like that. Next process is for you, of course, is to be praying with us, covering the team in prayer for discernment and God's wisdom in this whole process. Eventually, there will be a time when we'll begin introducing people to you for you to consider and uh, for us all to pray together and unite together and how God's going to lead us that way. So it's encouraging. Uh, God has given us some great uh, choices ahead of us, very difficult and hard and uh, pray that the team and the elders, as they get involved in the next interviews as well, will have uh, great understanding and be able to move forward on all of these things. So, how I jumped into that, got to get back into 1 Kings 18. As I said, Derek introduced this to us a couple of weeks ago, back in uh, 1 Kings 17. Uh, when he was preaching, he said, this is the beginning of a God war, Jehovah versus Baal. And what's taking place in this time of kings is that Israel and Judah have wandered from God. They have begun falling into idol worship. And Elijah is now raised up as a prophet of the Lord. He's raised up to bring down covenant curses, really. He's here to announce to Israel that God is enacting what he spoke of when Moses first was establishing the covenant with them. That if they came into the land and they were faithful to following him and did not turn to other gods, other idols, that he would be faithful to them. But they have wandered, they have drifted, they have disregarded the covenant. And so through Elijah, who God raises up, God's voice is coming to them. And he's saying now is the time of reckoning. And as Elijah comes, he is also bringing a positive message. Because the positive side of judgment is a calling back. It is a calling back. God is saying to his people, I desire you to be my people. I want you to be a pure and holy people and be drawn to me. And we'll see that in what takes place today in 1 Kings 18. So as we read these accounts and as we look through Elijah's life, it is really to see how God calls us in times of change, in times of opposition, when the culture seems to stand against us and our minds and hearts might be swayed. And we listen for God's voice in the confusion. And as we do that, we have to understand something of the context always that we are walking into. So as we come to 1 Kings 18 today, the context is a confrontation that has been brewing. It's been brewing for over two years in Israel between King Ahab and Elijah. Remember who Ahab is. Back in uh, in 1 Kings 16, Ahab is introduced this way, and I'll just read this passage for us. It says, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ithbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. And get this, did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all of the kings of Israel before him. That is an indictment. (laughs) I mean, to have the anger of the Lord roused more than anybody else is a huge commentary about who this king was, reigning for 22 years. And in time, the Lord moves against Ahab. That was chapter 17. Derek walked through, but the beginning verses of 17.1 is simply this. Elijah comes and says to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Neither dew or rain. It was going to be dry. (laughs) Right? To not wake up in the morning, not even have the ground moistened with some dew. There was a severe drought. God said, I am taking it all away from you. Why? Because Baal, part of Baal is the god of rain, god of fertility, and he was brought in. And God is saying, I am standing against Baal so that you will understand who the god of the heavens really is. And so Elijah, after he makes that announcement, goes into hiding for a couple of years. And he was incredibly cared for by the Lord. That's chapter 17. That God granted through him life and God granted hope through him. And it's in this time that, uh, that the, the drought takes effect on the land and there is this severe drought and famine that takes place. So now we're up to speed, getting ready for chapter 18. This is a huge story of the Old Testament, chapter 18. It's one of those stories that is is told and repeated over and over again. There's drama, there's excitement, there's movement in this passage of Scripture. Uh, There are great, uh, you know, this is the stuff of movie scripts. What's going to happen during this chapter? But at the heart of it is that Elijah, as the prophet who has come, is beginning the reformation of Israel. God is shaping his people. And Elijah, part of his reputation, which carries him through Old Testament, but into the New Testament. Remember in Thessalonians, we were talking about Elijah was the prophet that was needed to come before the Messiah comes again. Elijah was that one who stood in the gap when this great change was needed. And a a huge part of his life was caught up in this chapter that we're going to read this morning. And so as you read it, it's a huge story, and we're going to read basically all of it this morning as we work our way through it, but there are moments in it that I believe God just wants to peg in our hearts. It's not just a story. It's not just a drama, but there are things to catch hold of of who God is and who He wants us to be as His people and what He desires for His people. So we'll take note, we'll read through, and I'll just make some comments as we work our way through. Not a, not a big outline this morning, so if you've got your Bibles this morning, it's really just working our way through these scriptures and thinking through some of the implications and the observations that come out as we share in this narrative story of scripture. So 1 Kings 18, we begin at the first verse, we read this. After a long time, this is the drought period, In the third year, so two plus years. It isn't completed the third, but we're in the third year. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. It's about to end. But Elijah, you need to go and present yourself there. So Elijah goes, presents himself to Ahab. It's anticipating a moment of confrontation. It's anticipating a moment when Elijah... This one who has caused this great stir to happen in in Israel is going to go back before the king. And before that happens, and I think to understand some of the dynamics, we have this story of a man by the name of Obadiah that begins this chapter. And he is an an advisor to King Ahab. And as we read the story, we just make a couple of observations, but I think it's important to catch what is happening here at the beginning. So as we read here, beginning in the second verse, the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. Remember that comment about him later. This is someone who was following God, and they'd followed him for a long time. And while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets, hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Interesting, he probably had access to food and water because he was in the palace, he was an advisor to the king, he was the administrator. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land, all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so you will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land. They were to cover Ahab going in one direction, Obadiah in another. So here you have these two high officials in the courts of Israel heading off to hopefully find pasture, to find something to feed the animals. Because it's getting so severe, they may have to begin to kill off some to save some others. And as Obadiah was walking along, we read, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord, Elijah? He's been in hiding. He's been hiding all this time. And how Obadiah recognized him, him, we're not told. But Elijah was a well-known figure. And they had been looking for him. Is it really you, my lord Elijah? And he bows before him. Yes, he replied. Go tell your master Elijah is here. And then look at his response. Obadiah's response, what have I done wrong? That you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as the Lord God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. Ahab has been on the hunt for Elijah all this time. And he's spread out to the other nations. And he's made nations swear. What he's basically saying is, I need your assurance that you can't find Elijah. Because if not, I'm going to come in against you. I will come and move my armies against your armies. This is how intense Ahab has been looking for Elijah. Then we read on. But now, Obadiah says, you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here, and I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. See, Ahab is saying, Elijah, if I go to Ahab and I say, hey, I found Elijah. He's actually been living just around the corner from us because that's where he's been. Remember the story of Zarephath. It's not that far from where Jezebel's headquarters is. It's, It's all in the same vicinity. Why they couldn't find him, we're not told. Obviously, it's God's protection over him. But Obadiah is thinking, if I tell Ahab this... I will become suspect that I've been hiding him, that I've been keeping something from Ahab, and my life will be in jeopardy. Yet I've worshiped the Lord since my youth, he says. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a 100 of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, supplied them with food and water. And now if you go to my master and say, Elijah is here, he will kill me. I will become suspect in what has been taking place. Three just quick observations. We're going to have to pass this by fairly quickly because it's a long passage. But I think it sets us up first to recognize that the tension, the situation with Ahab is incredibly intense. I mean, this is a man who wanted blood. This is a man who saw the solutions to his problems was finding Elijah and putting him to death. In other words, Obadiah or Ahab is just seeing that he is the source of all his problems. And Obadiah is fearing for his life. Obadiah fears for what might happen to him. So it's an intense situation. I think the second observation is how Obadiah has been taking care of what is is going on during this intense situation. Incredible opposition that's coming out of the palace that he is the administrator in. I think what we're understanding here is that there is a sense that there is a different way to deal with opposition. Obadiah is very faithful, but in a very private way. In fact, I would suggest even in a clandestine kind of way. He takes the hundred prophets and hides them in caves. You know, he kind of spirits them away so that Jezebel was not able to put them to death that she had apparently put other prophets to death already. Obadiah didn't kind of try to muster an army and stand against Obadiah. He didn't get up in the palace and say, you're doing it wrong. What he did was God called him to be faithful in a very private kind of way, and he hid them. And in God's kingdom, as as there are a variety of, of persecutions and oppositions that rise up, there is a wisdom and a scrutiny that we need to go through about how we respond in different situations. Not every situation is going to call for us to have a direct confrontation. Some situations call for us to be wise and to be private, to be faithful, and to wait for God to move in His ways A blessing can be found there. I was listening to a sermon by Don Carson talking about this, and he really highlighted that for me, that in the kingdom of God, there are different strategies in various times. And Obadiah is this devout believer who faithfully served God but never in a head-on approach. He was one who took those and protected them, took those and kept them safe until that storm kind of blew over for the kingdom. And then God raises up Elijah to be the one who is going to be in this face-to-face kind of confrontation. And I was listening to that and thinking this through. I thought, yeah, here's Obadiah who's been faithful during these years and has kept it alive. He's kept God's people alive and he's kept faith alive, waiting for the moment when God is going to come in and be vindicated once again. I think there's moments in our history and in our culture where we've got to consider some of these things. What is the best moves for us? What is the, the way that we can protect the gospel, that we can protect the church? being faithful to God in the midst of it, but also waiting for that moment when God's voice will be heard and declared. Wow, it takes prayer, it takes wisdom, it takes a lot of conversation, a lot of working together through that. But I think Obadiah helps us to understand the preparation that's being made for Elijah to come back on the scene. God is putting this all in order. And then the last thing would just be to remember a little later that while Elijah is going to stand alone, and in Elijah's life, he, he talks so often about being alone, and he's the only one left. And in fact, next week where Jesse's going to take us is Elijah goes into despair because he feels so alone. But remember this beginning, Obadiah, Obadiah is a devout believer, <laughs> Obadiah's got a hundred prophets that he hid. They're never alone. You're never entirely alone. There may be a sense that you need to stand alone, but God always has a people, and they will be found. Verse 15, Elijah puts Obadiah's fears to rest. As the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. You have my promise, Obadiah. Go and make the preparations. Go and get Ahab ready, because I will be there. The moment has come. And so the confrontation is what follows. Verse 16, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? You know, you, the source of all our problems. You, the one who's brought famine on this land, caused drought, caused despair, caused, and I'm sure Ahab's thinking, caused me a whole lot of trouble because my people are now rising up and, and calling me out, saying, how can I help them? How will I take care of them? Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah looks him right back and says, I have not made trouble for Israel but you and your father's family have. Wow, talk about bold. <laughs> you know, later on, Elijah says, in, in later verses, he says, I'm only doing everything that God told me to do. <laughs> Man, he'd, he'd want to make sure he's got that right, wouldn't he? I'm supposed to call Ahab, you're the trouble. You and your father's family have caused all the trouble. And what is the trouble? You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. You know, Ahab, it's your family. It's your grief. It's what you are causing to happen in Israel that is all the trouble. It's interesting how we define trouble. Depends what side of it you're on, right? Ahab sees trouble as being outside of himself the troubles no rain, people complaining to him. The source of that trouble is Elijah. Whereas Elijah knows the source of the trouble because the Lord has revealed it to him. The trouble is the heart and the actions of the king. The king has brought the Lord's anger down on his nation. And he's saying, Ahab, lessons need to be learned here. You need to grow to a place where you understand where true trouble comes from. The true trouble for you is coming because you have taken God's covenant lightly. And you have swung the nation away from it. And so Elijah turns after saying, you are the troubler. He now turns and he tells the king what we're going to do. I find that interesting as well. Here's Elijah, a prophet, coming into the king's presence and saying, here's how it's going to happen, Ahab. Here's what we're going to do now. And even though the prophet's under threat of death from the king, he gives the plans, and they're followed. Because Elijah is working only what God has told him to do, and there must have been an authority with his commands that even Ahab went, ooh, we'll listen, and we'll do this. So Elijah says, verse 19, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. This is a major event. Send the message far and wide through Israel. Gather everybody that you can and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Bring all 850 of your prophets with you And we are all going to gather on Mount Carmel. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembles the prophets on Mount Carmel, 850 prophets to one. These are God-sized odds. (laughs) Jehovah likes these kind of odds. Jehovah likes when he can stand alone against the, the assembled masses of those who would stand against him. You see it with Moses assembling the the Egyptian magicians. You remember that one, the plagues? And they all gathered and did their thing, and Moses is standing alone. Not alone, though. He has the word of God and the direction of God. Gideon, as he assembles his 300 with just a bucket or pitchers and lamps versus 10,000 Midianites. These are God-sized odds when only God will be able to vindicate what's taking place. And they gather all this throng of people, and Elijah goes before the people and says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. It's time to take sides. I was reading some of John Piper's commentator on this, and he, he just makes a very strong point that when you're reading these narratives, you have to identify where is the purpose part of the story. Here's the purpose. The purpose story, who are you going to follow? Right? The rubber's hitting the road for Israel. Elijah standing before them and saying, the moment has come where God is sick and tired of your wavering between these two opinions, these two sides, Jehovah or Baal, trying to have the best of both worlds. That little word waver, as you read some commentators, is an interesting word. It's actually the word for limping as well, right? How long, and the ESV translated, how long are you going to limp between these two? It's really a picture of a people who are crippled, right? The people who are really just in, not inactive, but they're just not able to really cope with what's going on. Why? Because they're not on one side or the other. They're just limping along. And Elijah calls them to this point and says, there is a time and a decision. Who will you follow? It's been two years without rain at the command of Jehovah. Baal, the, the god of rain and fertility, hasn't been able to do a thing. How long will you limp along in this way? You see, we can't have it both ways. You can't kind of say, I'll take the best of what the church has to offer and the best of what culture has to offer. You need to be on one side or the other. You need to have that sense of, this is where I will stand. Choose who are you going to follow. And then catch what happens. The response of the people. They say nothing. They're silent. They have no answer. They're incapacitated. They're lost. They are limping along. It's a terrible place to be in. They're faced with a choice that to them, they, they just they don't have the capacity to be able to say, which way should we go? They're lost at this moment. So Elijah presents them with a plan. Verse 22 and following, and he starts off by saying, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Remember, remember that later in his story. But it is very significant. He is very aware of how alone he is. He has called the masses together and he is standing alone before 850 other prophets. He's standing alone before Ahab. I assume his army's there with him. He's standing before a people who are are waffling in their opinions of, of where they are spiritually. You know, it's not entirely accurate that he's the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but it is how he is feeling. It is his experience. I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Baal has 450 prophets. So here's what we're going to do. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And now the people speak up. They all say, what you say is good. We like this idea. I think they answer in that moment because they say, hey, that puts us off the hook. <laughs> right, we don't have to decide. Elijah, you'll, you'll make the decision easy for us. You know, you're going to give us empirical proof. Right? And, and they speak up for that. Yay! Go, Elijah! You know, do what you have to do. It's all on your shoulders. You know, there's no, no skin in the game for us. We're just spectators of this whole thing. Yeah, sounds real good to us. And Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first. There's so many of you, you can go first. Call in the name of your God. Don't light the fire. And they take the bull given them and they prepare it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. Interesting. Remember I talked about that waver? That word waver is actually the same word as this word danced. You can also translate, and they limped around the altar. <laughs> They limped in their way around the altar. It just, it kind of suggests the futility of what they were doing, this broken dance. And they do it from morning till noon. And at noon, Elijah begins to taunt them. Shout louder, he says. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, busy. Maybe he's traveling. You know, mockery isn't usually the place you go to in ministry right it's usually not the recommended form of uh being in confrontation but in this moment it seems to make a lot of sense you know elijah is just heightening the absurdity of what is taking place here maybe he's sleeping maybe you need to wake him up you know do what you can and so they shout louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as towards their custom until their blood flowed, trying somehow to get this idol to respond to them. At midday passes, and they continued their frantic prophesying. Another great word. They are frantic about this. They they don't know what else to do. They're doing all that they can as they limp around their altar in this empty, futile dance that they are performing, trying to get this man-made hunk of metal or wood or clay or whatever it was to respond to them. And they prophesy until the time for the evening sacrifice. From morning to until the time for the evening sacrifice, late in the afternoon, they circle and they dance and they scream and they yell and they cut themselves, trying to give this picture that Baal would somehow respond to all of this. And look at the next response. Look at this repetition that gets made here. And there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. It drives home the emptiness of all their efforts. They are spent. They are broken. And in a real sense, they are alone. No one has joined them. They are 450 strong prophets of Baal. But they are standing alone now before Elijah. They are alone because no one has answered, no one has paid attention. And that's the promise with idols. It's the promise with idolatry even in our own lives. There's lots of promise but no delivery. You know, idolatry in our lives is when we allow something to take the place of God, the rightful place of God in our hearts and our lives. You know, we're looking for that which only God can, can ultimately give to us. And we let things steal His place in our hearts. Lots of promises, security, pleasure, power, popularity. But always in the end, there is no response. No one answers. No one pays attention to the cries of our hearts. And we are left alone. And Elijah's saying, who are you following? Are you following anyone or are you feeling alone in this today? Wow, we can still feel it today. know, our idol not, may not be Baal, but the idols of our lives are those things that take the place of God. And we have a, a loneliness, we have a despair, we have a guilt that cannot be handled by anything else but God himself. So after that whole day of that nonsense that's taking place Elijah finally stands and says to all the people come here to me it's invitation come gather gather around me and they come to him and he repairs the altar of the Lord which had been torn down and he takes 12 stones one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob. You can only imagine that as he is rebuilding this altar and the stones are being gathered and he's, he's got people to help him lift these stones into place, and he's saying, let's place this one for the tribe of Manasseh and this one for the tribe of Reuben and this one for the tribe of Simeon. All 12 of those tribes being represented there. Very significant moment. Because in this place in the history of Israel, they're divided into two nations Israel in the north, Judah in the south, ten nations to the north, two nations in the south. But by taking these 12 stones, Elijah is declaring Jehovah is still the covenant God of Israel, and this is his altar that we are building together here. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sias of seed. That's about sixteen liters if you'd like to convert it. And he arranges the wood and he cuts the bowl into pieces and he lays it on top of the wood. And he says, Now fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Gallons of water over the offering. An offering that we're going to light on fire in a few minutes. People looking and say, This is madness. And he says, do it again, and they do it again. And he says, do it again, a third time, and they do it again. And the water runs down around the altar and fills the trench around it. There is absolutely no doubt that no fires are going to be started on this altar that day if they're man-made. If they're man-made. Elijah, listening to the word of the Lord, God is saying, Elijah, let's make sure they all understand who is in charge now. And about the time of the sacrifice, Elijah steps forward and he lifts his hands, his heart, his eyes to heaven, and he prays down in verse 36, 37. And he says, Lord... The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Let there be no doubt this is not about me. God, this is you. I have followed your orders. I have only done what you have given me to do as the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who came to be called Israel. God, you are the one who has lived with us and through us as all of Israel. Let there be no mistake. This is your work. And then verse 37. And here the purpose gets even more explicit. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Listen to that. Listen to that purpose. I think there's two purposes here that Elijah's saying very explicitly. Here's what it's all about. He's praying, Lord, these people really need to know the reality that you, the Lord, is God. There is one God, sustainer, creator, king, sovereign, one God who has brought everything into existence and who has invited Israel to be his people. God, that this people would know that you, Lord, are God. But then look what he adds. Look what he adds. It's not enough for them just to know that the Lord is God. And he says, and that you are turning their hearts back again. They need to know, God, that you are moving into their lives and turning them back to you. This is grace. This is grace. Even when they have run away from him in the covenant, when they have turned to false gods, this is God saying, I am turning your hearts back to me. It's not just going to be a display of his power. It's going to be a display of his grace that they are being folded again once into his arms so they might know and understand what it is to be home, what it is to be once again the people of God. Oh, God, this is what they need to know. Yes, they need to know that you are the Lord God, but, God, they need to know your grace. They need to know that you are inviting them into your presence. And Elijah lifts his hands and his heart, and he finishes his prayer, and boom! What happens? Right? Fire falls from heaven. Fire rains down from heaven. It says, The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up all the water in the trench. It was all gone. Wow. Can you imagine that? I've been at camps where we've attempted to do what's called an Elijah fire, right? How many of you have ever been around that? few hands go up, right? You get somebody hiding up in a tree or a fence and they shoot something down a wire into a gas-soaked fire. I've had good experiences, bad experiences, very unsafe experiences, <laughs> a little bit too much gas on a fire with kids gathered around. You know, and there is something spectacular about that. But that moment, that fire comes in it, but nothing would ever compare to what just took place here. The fire of God, the Lord, fell and burns up everything. The bull is gone. The wood is gone. The stones are gone. Those 12 stones that represent Israel vaporized. This was no act of nature. This was not even a lightning bolt. This was the hand of God making a full impact of his glory and consuming everything. I think a part of this overall consumption of everything is saying that this is where Israel will also be if they do not come under my gracious hand of glory. They too will be consumed as these stones are consumed and there isn't an altar left anymore they can't kind of keep coming back to this place and saying oh yeah this is where god works (laughs) it's gone god has moved and as they are this great statement and so too as the altar may be gone so too will be israel if they continue to disregard the covenant of god and when all the people saw this they fall prostrate and cry The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They got the message. No longer silent, no longer spectators, kind of just standing back and saying, okay, this will be great, let Elijah handle all this. The fire of God has fallen, and in that moment, they fall prostrate. They're on their faces on the ground because they realized There is but one God, Jehovah, God of Israel, that has moved in this moment. The question, where their hearts turn back, Did they understand the grace of this moment. See, God can do great and wonderful things. God, Jesus does all these miracles through the Gospels. And people still had hard hearts towards him. See, the issue here, folks, isn't seeing grand displays of God's glory. In our history of a church, we've seen God move in remarkable ways. But you know what? It's only when we appreciate his grace in our lives that we begin to see him active there. It's how we get here. God moves in grace in our lives where their hearts turned back again. That was God's invitation in this whole moment. In this huge confrontation of Elijah the prophet and the prophets of Baal, God standing against the false prophets. The other confrontation like this took place on a hill called Calvary. Calvary. Jesus hung on a cross in confrontation against the the kingdom of the enemy, the evil one, the kingdom of darkness, and took all of our sins on his shoulders and was consumed by death for our sins. And the centurion at the foot of the cross says, Surely this was the Son of God. We can see that moment, and we can understand the glory of it, but if we are not receiving the grace that is poured out in that moment into our hearts and our lives, we're missing the purpose. And the cry is, yeah, we need to know that the Lord, He is God. We need to understand that He is the one who will stand alone and is sovereign, is king, and one day will return in glory as Jesus comes back, and we talked about that in Thessalonians. But all of it is driving us to this place of receiving this redemptive work of God in our lives. And when God moves in our heart that you have an understanding and an inkling of his presence, you need to rejoice in that because it's the Lord turning your hearts back again to him. Trent, you and the team, come on back up. The rest of the story, I'm not going to cover it for us this morning because I think we've hit this purpose. In, you know, in summary, the prophets of Baal and Asherah are destroyed. The idols are torn down. As God promised, he brings back the rain. Elijah has to go up on the mountain. He prays seven times, and then the rains come. But for us today, we need to know the kingdom of God stands and grows and we are invited to be in it by His grace. Do you know today that the Lord, He is God? And do you know that He wants to turn your heart back to Himself? For some of you, that might mean that you have never understood that in your life. You have never accepted the gift of salvation. The forgiveness that is found through Christ. Today is the day. that the Lord is speaking to your heart about A sense of guilt for sin, that can be taken through forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Are you feeling alone? Are you feeling like you are standing all alone? The Lord in his kingdom wants to minister to your heart and draw you in so that you understand that you are never alone with him. You have a family that will gather with you. We need to know that the Lord, he is God. But I think even more, we need to know each day that he's turning our hearts to himself. To live in his grace each day. To experience and be blessed by his work within us. Heavenly Father, thank you that as we listen to your word today, that our hearts can be blessed and encouraged that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That though this was a great and powerful story, Father, and we... We are amazed to see your glory on display in these ways, but the greater story for us today is, God, your glory is still on display, and we can have a sense of it, even today, to understand your grace in our hearts and in our lives. Oh, bless us with this, Father. Father, if there are those who need to know Jesus in a more personal way, have never understood the grace of salvation, would this be the day that you would reckon that with them? And draw them to yourself. Father if there's those who are lost. And alone. And feeling weighed under. Father would you draw them to yourself. And allow us as a family. To minister to each other. To know that your grace. Is at at work and moving here among us. Thank you for these things. Bless us we pray. Amen.